You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is John Hall. I am uh, one of the elders here at Citizens Church, and it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I hope uh, all of you had a Merry Christmas this past week. I hope it was everything that you hoped it would be. I hope you got to hang out with family, with friends, and with people that you love, and that it was just a great day all around. But I also understand that for some of you here, uh, Christmas is not quite the exciting time that it's billed to be. Uh, For some of you, it is a time to remind you of people who are no longer here. Uh, For some of you, it is a reminder that life has not turned out the way that you hoped it would be. And I just want to say that we understand that and that we see you and that we are praying for you. Uh, For me personally, I lost my father back in 2017. This is the third Christmas that he was not with us. And so I understand a small piece of that. But moving on uh, past that, uh, I think one of the things that we have the opportunity to do today is this is our last Sunday of 2019. That's hard to believe, is it not? And so we have the opportunity today to look back on what 2019 has brought us as a church. And 2019 has been very, very good to us. In August, we became Citizens Church, and God has been good to us, the way that His hand has been upon us, the way that you guys have come together, and it's just been marvelous to watch. It's been marvelous to be a part of it. But I also hope that you take the opportunity as an individual to consider what God has done for you individually, for you and your family, and to look back on 2019 and think about all that God has done. And I know for the halls, God has been better to us than we deserve. But on this, uh, this day, we also have the opportunity to look forward to 2020. Here in a few days, it will be a new year. It will be a new decade. And if we're not careful, we can look at the coming year and forget that God is sovereign and that he is in control. And you ask, what do you mean by that? Well, 2020 is going to be an election year. And what a joy social media will be in the coming year, will it not? And we watch a nation that is divided and we watch a world that is seemingly spinning more and more out of control as the days go by. And it's easy for us to forget that God is at work, that he is saving souls and that he is accomplishing his will even in the midst of all of that. But today is also one of those days and it's at that point that it makes us take a serious uh, inventory of our own lives. And so we kind of think about what are the New Year's resolutions that we're gonna make. And maybe for some of you, it's to be better parents. Maybe for some of you, it's to be a better spouse. Maybe it's to eat healthier, to lose weight, uh, to watch less TV, to read your Bible more, to pray more, and all of those things. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're all good things, but resolutions don't transform us. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So with all of these things in mind, today we're going to take a look at Galatians 2, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 21, if you need to go ahead and turn there. But before we look at Galatians 2, we need to understand a little background on the passage that we are about to read. And we need to understand some of the dynamics and even the difficulties within the first century church. And so they had their issues. And one of the issues that they had is the relationship between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And so when it came to relating to Gentile believers, there were two schools of thought in the early church. One school of thought said that Christianity is for Jews only. And it should be a Jewish religion, and it should stay that way. And if you are going to allow Gentiles 
into that group, if you're going to allow them into the faith, then at the very least, the Gentiles should accept the Jewish culture, they should accept the Jewish customs, the rituals, especially circumcision, and they should practice the Mosaic law. And so that was one school of thought. The other school of thought is where uh, Christianity has leaned and has fallen on for the past 2,000 years, and that is the gospel and the gospel alone is enough, and it is for all people, for all nations. And so those are your two schools of thought. And so we're gonna read about an incident in Galatians where Paul confronted Peter over the issue of eating with Gentiles. And so before we get there and before we kind of wrestle with that text, we need to understand some of the background on the church at Antioch from the book of Acts. And so we're gonna read from Galatians. And of course, Galatians was written to a group of churches in the region of Galatia. But Paul is referring to an incident that happened at the church of Antioch. So I want us to understand a little bit of the background. So we're gonna go to the book of Acts to do that. In chapter seven, specifically at the end of seven, Stephen is killed. And after he is killed, persecution breaks out for the first time in the church. And what looks like the greatest tragedy in the early church becomes the spark to carry the gospel forth into the world. And at this particular time, the early church didn't understand that. The early church looked at it and they began to question, how do you lose someone like Stephen and continue to function? How do you face persecution with all of the believers on the run and you continue to function? And it looked like chaos had broken out. But this is why church can never be about a person. It can never be about a personality. It cannot be like it's Stephen's or it's Paul's or it's Peter's. It always, always, always has to be about Jesus. And so God shows up in the midst of this chaos. And while the early church is, is kind of reeling from all of this, God shows up in a miraculous way. And God says, watch this. And in Acts chapter 9, he goes and he saves the very person who is behind all the persecution, a guy named Saul of Tarsus that we later come to know as Paul. And so he goes beyond that. He goes and begins to push upon the leadership within Jerusalem. And even the apostle Peter has some heart change to do in this area. And an interesting thing happens in Acts chapter 10. He's sitting on the roof of his house and he's praying and he sees a vision. And in that vision, there is something like a sheet that is falling from heaven. And on that sheet are all kinds of animals that the Mosaic law would consider unclean or unfit to eat. And so he is commanded in that moment to rise, to kill, and to eat. And being a Jewish man, he says, no way, I know that's all unclean food, that's not good. And so God is broadening his perspective to look beyond the Jewish uh, race into other races that the gospel is for everyone. And about that time, a guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, shows up, invites him back to his home. Peter follows him, preaches the gospel to his household, and his entire household is saved. And the Holy Spirit descends upon the place and Peter baptizes them. And at the end of chapter 10, the Bible tells us that Peter stayed there for several days. Now, we don't know what they did during those several days, but one of the things that we know they did is that they ate. And you think, well, I would hope so. But you see, eating for a Jewish man to eat with Gentiles is a completely different issue than it is for us. For us, let's say going out and eating, that's a social event, is it not? Let's say you get to go out and you get to eat with people that you like. So you're gonna to get to catch up on things, you're gonna to get to visit, it's gonna be great, get some great food, great time with people you love. But let's say you go out with somebody you don't know. 
Okay, this could go good, it could go bad, okay, in a lot of ways. But it's only going to be about an hour, an hour and a half, and besides, you get some good food out of it, right? So can't hurt. And so the other side of it is, what if you go out to eat with somebody you don't care for? And so you're weighing your options at this point. Could I stand being with this person for an hour, an hour and a half, so I can get some good food? And so these things are a social event for us. But in the first century church, it was so much more. Really what it meant was, you are an outsider until I invite you into a meal. And when I invite you into a meal, you now become part of the group. I have included you in this. And this is what happens over the course of the days. Here is a man who is a Jewish man. He goes to a Gentile home. They share meals together. And now they are family in Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful thing. And so it brings us to Acts 11. And so looking at the first three verses of Acts 11, I think this is going to be great. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. This is an exciting moment, man. Jerusalem's going to be all for this, are they not? They're going to applaud this. People, Gentiles are getting saved. But then we read verse 2, and this is what happens. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, meaning that group of people who were Jewish in the early church that held to that first school of thought, that said you need the gospel and you need the Mosaic law. This group of people, this is what they did. They criticized him. Why did they criticize him? Verse 3 tells us, saying you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now you've got to understand something. We're about to read something in Galatians 2 in our passage today. And in this, Peter will be faced with this same dilemma. And in this dilemma and in this moment, he is going to sin. He is going to fall back on what he's learned in this particular passage. And so this is important to understand. So for us, sharing a meal is just a social event, but for most of the world, it's a bigger thing. I, I didn't understand this until I went to India. I work for an organization called Aim for India, and part of that, my responsibilities with that organization is I travel to India, uh, usually about twice a year. And so the first time I went to India was in the year 2012. And like a lot of people who travel to India for the first time, it takes your digestive tract a little while to adjust to Indian food, okay? And Indian food, the real authentic stuff, man, it is spicy. I mean, it, there's spicy and then there's Indian food. And by the way, I love Indian food, so I, I get it today, man. I can, I can dig that. I can eat all the Indian food you want. But at the time, it was a struggle for me. I was on a 15-day trip. By day three, I was struggling with dehydration. By day seven, I was still struggling with dehydration, but I began to run a low-grade fever. And on that day, I was scheduled to speak at a pastor's conference. And so I said to myself as I got up, I'm going to struggle through this. I'm going to suck it up. We're going to go. We're going to do this. I'll take my protein bar. I'll take my Gatorade. It'll be fine. And so I struggle through speaking at the pastor's conference. I get through it. I think, Phew, it's over. And then the people who work with me come to it and they say, hey, we've got a surprise for you. The pastors in your honor today catered a meal. And we need you to take one for the team. You need to eat with them. You need to take this upon yourself to eat what they've provided. And I went over to the pot and it was a chicken curry, delicious stuff. But I smelt that and those spices hit me. And if my stomach could speak, it would beg me, please, please, please don't eat that. And so one of the first things I said is, I'm going to eat this, but I need to know, is there a restroom nearby? So we're out in rural India. We're in a little building. It's crowded. It's about 95 degrees with 90% humidity. I'm 
almost dehydrated. I'm struggling to say the least. I'm running a fever. And so as I asked this question, one of the pastors who could speak English came up to me. He said, as you go to the bathroom, remember this. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. He said, when you go in there, check the rafters. I'm like, why would I check the rafters? He's like, there might be cobras. And I thought, if I open the door and there's a cobra in the rafters, I will no longer need a restroom. I'll need a change of pair of pants. But you know, something, something happened in that moment that I didn't expect, is that when I sat down and I took that plate of food and every eye in the room was on me, and as I ate that food with those pastors, all of a sudden I went from being the American outsider to being part of their family and they included me in that moment. And that meal was so much more to them than us just sitting down and taking a meal together. And so I want us to take a look not only at Peter's struggle with this issue, but also the beginning of the church in Antioch, verses 19 through 26 in Acts chapter 11. This is how the church at Antioch begins. So we're gonna read about the church in Antioch, so this is the beginning of it. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except, guess who? Jews, okay? No surprise there, but thank God for these men in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, or Gentiles in other words, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then, uh uh-oh, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they send their boy Barnabas up there to check things out, find out what's going on in Antioch. And verse 23 says, when he came and he saw, look at this, he saw the grace of God. He walked into the place and it was evident that God was doing a work in their midst that could only be explained by the work of God. And he was blown away by this. It says he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then look at verse 25. So Barnabas, where would you expect him to go to get help? I mean, it's beyond him at this point. It's grown to a point where he needs help. So he's going to go back to Jerusalem, right? I mean, he's going to go back to his home church and he's going to find some people to help him. But that's not what the Bible says he does. It says Barnabas at that point went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And at this point, world history, the history of Western civilization and church history change in a moment. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word Christian literally means a follower of Christ. It means that the people in Antioch, someone would ask another person and say, who are those people? And they say, oh, those are the Christians because their work was so evident. It was so filled with the Spirit. It was locked into what the gospel was all about. And so all of this, understanding the issue of what it means to eat with the Gentile, understanding the beginning of the church at Antioch, this all sets the table for us to better understand the text in Galatians 2, especially about the dynamics between the two schools of thought in the early church and how Paul is going to decimate one with the truth of the gospel. So let's take a look, if you will, Galatians chapter two, let's dive into our text, verses 11 through 21. 
It says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I, meaning Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's an amazing statement. What Paul is saying in this moment is that I was right, he was wrong, therefore I confronted him about it. For before certain men came from James, James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, did you catch that? When I saw their conduct, the way they were living, the way they were carrying themselves was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, the book of Galatians is written to deal with a group of people who were teaching false things in the early church. They were people more than likely who were Jewish from this first school of thought who said you need the gospel plus the Mosaic law for everything to work out. And so in doing so, they were implying that in Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was insufficient to save people from their sin and to deliver them from such. And so Paul's take on this idea is that they have perverted the gospel. They have taken the gospel and they have distorted it to such a fact that it is no longer the gospel. And so Paul was say, basically saying that the clear teaching in the gospel is that it is sufficient to both save and to deliver a person from their sin, meaning that Christ fully and completely paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross, when he rose from the grave. And because of this, in Christ, we are forgiven. And we now have the power to overcome sin, that sin can no longer master us because of what Christ has done. And so we have both freedom and victory in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. And I just wanna be crystal clear about this. I want you to understand this. The gospel needs nothing else. The gospel alone is sufficient. It is the power of God unto salvations is what Romans would tell us. And as believers, we are to live lives that are a visible, tangible expression of the truth of the gospel. So let's say, for example, that things are going your way in life that you have a number of wins that are stacking up and things are just rolling in your favor, then with humility, you remember that every good thing is from heaven above and you accept those things in humility. But let's say life is a train wreck 
and we approach those disappointments and even those tragedies with a faith and a belief that God is still in control, that he is managing things and that he's working all things for my good because he loves me. And so regardless of the circumstances, we are to live lives that are in step with the truth of the gospel. And we can see from the passages both in Acts and here in Galatians that there was this internal issue between Jewish believers and between Gentile believers that made things rough. But it is this very issue that God is going to use to bring clarity to what the gospel actually is for the early church. And as an example of this, Paul recounts a time when he had to confront Peter about his lack of faith and his hypocrisy in trying to ride the fence on this issue of how to deal with Gentile believers. So for Peter, the entire episode is a lapse in judgment. He knows in his head what the gospel is. And in fact, he knows the gospel so well that he knows that he should be eating meals with Gentile believers because Christ has afforded him that freedom. But the reality is, is that in this moment, Peter is more fearful of the opinion of man than he is of God. And because of that, it leads him into sin and it leads him into hypocrisy. Worse than all of that, Peter's hypocrisy and sin is infectious. So there are other Jewish believers who are following him into this hypocrisy and doing the same thing. And in this moment, Peter has a litany of sins that he's committing. One of those is pride. He's basically saying in this moment, by refusing to eat with Gentile believers, that, hey, I know better. I'll make the decision on that. It's obviously selfish, is it not? So he's doing what is in his own best, perceived best interest, rather than the church's best interest. It is racial prejudice. His inaction by withdrawing from Gentile believers has made a declarative statement on what he feels the place of the Jewish race is as compared to Gentiles rather than being joint heirs of the kingdom of God. And so in this moment, he has sinned, and he has also sinned because he has failed to lead the church in the way he is supposed to. He has yielded his responsibility as a church leader to others who are not qualified and have not the heart to lead. And this is what sin does each and every time. It seems so harmless in the beginning. What would it hurt for just a few days to withdraw from eating with the Gentiles? And yet it kills, it steals, it destroys everything in its path. And it does this because it can do nothing else. That's all sin can do. And so the reality for many of us is this is also true of us. We live lives that aren't always in step with the truth of the gospel. I don't know about you, but for me, there are so many days in my life that go back that I just put it on cruise control. And I don't give a lot of thought to whether my life is lining up with the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm probably the only one in this room that struggles with that. But then again, maybe not. But here's the deal. Back to Paul's confrontation with Peter and his motivation for it. You see, Paul loved Jesus. And this is the reason he confronts Peter. And one of the reasons he confronts Peter is because he also loved Peter. And he loved the Jewish believers who had followed him off into sin. And he loved the Gentile believers who had been so grievously wronged by all of this. And he loved the church in Antioch. And rather than allowing this to be an issue that would tear them apart, he wanted this to be an issue that would unify them, that allows them to take a step up for the kingdom of God. And he wanted the church to live out the gospel in such a way that it would be on display for everyone. And so he confronts Peter with this question. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And you're saying, what? Let me say it another way so that you can understand it. If you, Peter, although a Jew by birth, understand the gospel well enough to live with the freedom guaranteed you in Christ, 
and not dependent upon the religious ritual of the Mosaic law, why would you then force others to live like the gospel is not enough? And praise be to God, the gospel is enough. Remember back to Acts 11, when Barnabas went to Antioch for the first time and he visibly saw the grace of God? And remember, this is the first place that believers were called Christians, actual Christ followers, because their lives were visible, physical, tangible examples of the gospel. And my prayer is that that would be true of us here at Citizens Church, that we would be a people who are so close, that are so bonded by the love of Christ, that we're so unified in our approach to what we are doing by caring for the gospel, that it would just pour out into this community. And I pray that, that my prayer is that what, that's what happens to us in the year 2020. So one of the things that we need to take a look at is kind of a source problem here. And so one of the source problems is when we rely upon religion rather than upon the gospel. So what happens when a person attempts to win God's love? And so in this, verses 15 through 19, the Apostle Paul is going to make a defense of his position that the gospel alone is enough. And so one of the accusations that would come or some of the accusations that would come against the Apostle Paul are that you're not really Jewish enough. And then another accusation would be, you're against the law of Moses. And then another accusation would be, you're for Christians just going out and living however they want. And there'd be no constraints placed upon them. So he's trying to defend all of these things. And so in verse 15, he answers the question as to whether he's Jewish or not. And he says, of all people, Paul certainly understands what it means to be born a Jew, part of the race of people who are covenant people. But he then clarifies the position in verse 16. Look at verse 16, what it says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one means Jews. No one means Gentiles. It means the entire group. And so this brings us to the question of morality. For Paul, this was a point that he had to defend himself from this Jewish crowd. And so the first school of thought's position was this. It says, okay, Paul, if you're a gospel-only guy, then what happens when a person comes to understand that every sin they have ever committed is now forgiven and every sin that they will ever do is now covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? What would keep them from being immoral people? Because now all of their sins are covered. They're just going to go off the rails and they're going to chase after license. So when believers go off the rails, they go off the rails in one of two ways. One way is they could become a legalist. They could believe that the gospel is a good thing, but you need other things added onto it. And so they follow a practice where Jesus saves them, and then they want to take back control of that. And they want to show God that they were worthy of being saved, and they want to earn it. And so with their actions and their moral, their ethical, their religious behavior, they want to win God's love and affection. That's what a legalist is. But the other way you can go is to be someone of license. And license means that you go off the rail completely the opposite way. That you take your life and you say, well, great, Christ has covered all my sins. I'll just go do whatever I want. I'll live my life like I want to live it. And I want to say this, if that's true on either one, neither of those understands the gospel. Neither understands what Christ has done for them. And in this situation with the churches in Galatia, Paul is not dealing with people of license. He's dealing with the legalist. And to combat this, Paul will boldly declare the gospel, that faith in Christ alone is what justifies a person before God. And so he takes hypothetically the situation 
What if people do go the way of license? And in verse 17, this is basically a take. It says, if the gospel leads to license on the part of a believer, does that make Christ a minister or a facilitator of sin? And this idea horrifies Paul. It horrifies him because that proposition is so out of line with the character of God. And so it brings us to the point, should believers be moral people? Of course, yes. Christians should be moral people, absolutely. But for the believer, this is a root and fruit issue. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're a believer in Christ, you are rooted in what Christ has accomplished for you. And if you're pressing into Christ and you're pursuing the things of Christ, the Bible says you will bear fruit. John 15, 5 says this. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If I abide in you, you abide in me, you will do what? Bear much fruit fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if a believer is pressing into following Jesus and following the tenets that are taught in scripture, of course, they're going to bear fruit. But religion does the opposite of this. Religion goes the opposite direction. Religion says, I'll try to muster up the effort to produce some fruit. And then I will use my fruit to show and prove that I've earned the right to be rooted in Christ. Said another way, this is what religion does. I try to obey God in order for him to love and accept me. This is what the gospel says. The gospel says that in Jesus Christ, you are already loved and accepted of God. And then out of that, you're motivated to obey him. And so Paul counters this argument in verse 18. He says, if I go back to what I tore down or I left behind being a defender of the Mosaic law, all that would prove is that I'm incapable of keeping the law. All that would prove is that I'm a transgressor, that I'm a sinner. That's all that that is going to show. And yet, here's where so many people land. It goes something like this. I sin, and then after a time, I sin so often that sin becomes a habit. And then that sin gains a foothold in my life, and it just becomes part of my life. And at this point, I am disgusted by not only what I've done, but in reality, what I've become. But you know what? I don't want anybody else to know about this. And I'm saying this because there are probably people in this room who are struggling with this. And so I just want to hide this. I want to keep this from others. When the Bible says we ought to confess that, bring that out in the open, bring that before our brothers and sisters in Christ and let them help us kill that. But that's not what happens. So we want to keep this a secret and we want to keep this to ourselves and we don't want anyone else to know about these things in our lives. And so we begin to think about how can I keep this a secret, yet at the same time get rid of this because I don't want this to be a part of my life. And so this, the answer seems so simple at this point. I know what I'll do. I'll just be more religious. I'll discipline myself. I'll, I'll read the Bible more. I'll, I'll pray more. I'll attend church more often. In fact, I'll get involved in church. I'll become a nicer, kinder person. And maybe, just maybe, I'll become more acceptable to God and eventually win him over and earn his love. And when we decide to take on religion as the solution to our sin problem, what we are really saying is I can manipulate God I can fool God into believing that I'm righteous and that somehow through my actions, I'll earn and win over his love. And re religion ends up being this external attempt to fix an internal problem that can't be fixed by anything else than the precious spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is why Paul declares in verse 19 that through the law and the emptiness of it, he died to the law in order to pursue something that was real, 
the gospel that God had provided for him. So religion ends up being this dry run, this attempt to fix things in me that cannot be fixed in me. And what we need is a real solution to our problem of sin. And praise be to God, there is one. In verses 20 and 21 are the solution, the real fix for my sin problem. Verse 20 opens with this mind-blowing statement. It says, I, meaning the Apostle Paul, meaning us, I have been crucified with Christ. Think about that for a minute before you just read and glance over it and keep going. Think about the implications of that, what that actually means. I've been crucified with Christ. Romans 6 would teach that the old sinful nature in us needed to die and supernaturally in some way that God performed this miracle that 2,000 years ago when they nailed Christ to the cross, they also nailed our old sinful nature to the cross so that with Christ or rather in Christ, my sin nature died in that place. And so God's solution to your sin problem was not to give you some sort of spiritual makeover. God's solution to your sin problem was to kill the nature in you that is causing you to sin to kill off the sin nature that held you in its clutches. And this is what Paul goes on to say. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if I died in Christ, then that also means that I would be resurrected in Christ. And so the reality is that the life that I now live is empowered by resurrection power. I live this life not in moral perfection, but I live this life in faith that what Jesus has declared about me is true. And what he has declared about me is that positionally I am righteous, I am holy, and I am just before God. And I look back at my life and I see all the sins in my past. And I look at that experience and I think there's no way I can be morally perfect in the future. There's no way I can stand before God and be holy and just and righteous. And Christ says, yes, you are. Because I declare it to be so. And so in this power, I have the ability to overcome sin and no longer be mastered by it because what if Christ has accomplished for me? And so the argument to this is always, well, that's neat and that sounds great, but it also sounds too good to be true. And my reply to that argument is simply this. I guess that's why they call the gospel good news because that's exactly what it is. Watchman Nee was a Chinese pastor who lived in the 20th century. He spent the last 20 years of his life in a Chinese prison because he refused to recant of his faith in Jesus Christ. After his death, his disciples compiled his sermons and they put them into book form. One of those books took the title, The Normal Christian Life. According to Watchman Nee, Galatians 2.20 is the biblical definition of the normal Christian life. This is the reality for all of us as believers. This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what Christ has gifted to us. And one of the things that has always stood out to me from that book was this teaching on Christ's blood being for the atonement for our sins. The atoning effects of Christ's blood was not for mankind, but rather it was to satisfy the wrath of God that was to come upon us. And so in essence, the atonement issue is that it was for God rather than for us. And because it was for God, he's the only one that gets to decide what value he places upon it. 
And it's at this point that most people take a look at their lives and they say, you know, I've done so many horrible things in my life. There's so many issues. There's so much sin there. I just don't know any way that God could love me for that. And the great news in that is it's not your call. It's actually God's call. And God has determined that the value of Christ's blood is sufficient for all sin, including yours. And that is a beautiful and a freeing and a true thing. See, there can be this tendency to believe that we've outsinned the grace of God. This tendency to believe that we have done too many things in our lives, too many things over the years for God to love us or forgive us. And what Paul is saying in verse 20 is that simply isn't true. In being crucified with Christ, it means your sin nature and every sinful act that comes with that has been dealt with in a way that only God could deal with it, in a way that he loved you and he paid the price for you so that you wouldn't have to go through those things. And for this reason, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And here's where Paul slams the door for good on the argument that you can be justified by the law. See, if you're going to make the argument that a person needs the gospel plus some other stuff to be okay with God, really what you're saying is that what Christ accomplished on the cross and his resurrection was not good enough. It didn't come through. It wasn't complete. And that, folks, is simply heresy. It's false, and it's not true. Paul's bold and simple declaration is that the gospel and the gospel alone saves and delivers a person from sin. And so Galatians 2 turns out to be this reminder that we're called to live in a way that reflects the truths of the gospel. We're to live in step with the gospel as the love of Christ controls us and it compels us to go out and be the body of Christ in a visible and a tangible way in this world. And as I look towards 2020 and even beyond that, my prayer is that you would cling to the beauty of this truth, that you would cling to the beauty of what the gospel offers us. And as a church, it would grow us closer together. It would grow us closer to God and it would cause you to love him deeper and draw near to him in the year ahead. I would challenge you with this. I would challenge you with what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in the gospel, he proved exactly how good he is. May we be a people who taste and see that those things are true. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity uh, to be here, Lord. And I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. I thank you for what you've accomplished for us. I thank you for the reality that you've done for us, what we could never do for ourselves. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. May we be a people who cling to that truth, who remind each other of these things. And Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today who doesn't know you, who has never trusted you, who's never bowed within their heart, their knee to you, declared you King and Savior and Lord. I pray today would be that day that you would find them and save them in a miraculous way. Lord, may we be a people who fall upon you, fall upon each other, confess our sins to each other, and boldly go forth into this world. I pray all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ.